All right, if you got your Bibles, we can open up to John chapter 4. And we started last week, we got to 20, uh, finished up to 26, and when Jesus reveals himself to the woman at the well as being the Messiah. And I read about him uh, witnessing to her. So this week, we're just going to keep going. Uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 21 just to get the context. So we get the end of that conversation. And then we'll, yeah, we'll keep going and we'll have a look at uh, a bit about personal evangelism and, uh, and, and also the rest of the chapter with the healing of the, the nobleman's child. Father, I just thank you for Lord, this, this awesome story. Lord, I pray that you'll motivate us to be, to be bold and to be brave and Lord, to go against our culture where we need to and to, to do things that will cause people to question what they believe, cause people to start searching for the truth. And uh, we just pray that you'll, you'll give us opportunities to that and, and the will and the knowledge and, and, the, um, and the boldness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting at verse 21 of John chapter 4, it says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So that finishes the conversation. Now the disciples come back. And at this point his disciples came. And they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not laboured, others have laboured, and you have entered into their labours. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. It's an awesome finish to that. You are the Christ, the Saviour of the world. So, 
back to verse 27. Um, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? I'm betting that maybe one of the reasons I didn't say anything is because they're pretty used to Jesus going against culture and doing strange things, uh, saying strange things. Uh, for example, you know, he heals the, the man who's been let down from the roof and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone goes, what? And he's always doing things that uh, are unexpected. And just to remind you, it's against their culture to speak to a woman, especially a Samaritan woman. So it's like a double whammy. First off, if you're a Jewish rabbi, you wouldn't even speak to your wife in public. That's how the culture was, that separation between men and women. And then you had this cultural divide between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans were like a, the Jews called them half-breeds. They had some of the truth. They had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and but then they modified it to make it fit their own religion. And so the Jews hated them and they weren't allowed in the temple. And so she had this double whammy against her. She was a woman and she was a Samaritan. And Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, but he didn't care. Jesus must have forgotten he was a Jewish rabbi. <laughs> All right, verse 28. Then the woman left her water pot. So why did she leave her water pot? Well, there's lots of reasons, but I've got two potential reasons. I'm not saying these are the only reasons. The first is that it's an illustration. That which was previously important to her no longer mattered. She was leaving her own life behind. So that was her livelihood. That was her way of surviving, and she's left it behind. It's gone. Second, um, perhaps she left her water pot out of appreciation. You have told me about my sin and my need, said the woman. You have told me about true worship. You want a cup of water? Take the whole pot. Take everything I have. It's yours. So that's another take on that. So when people get truly saved, they quit asking, what can I get from God? And instead ask, what can I give to God? So she's given him everything, and she's given up everything for him. And she went her way into the city and said to the men, so what happens when a baby comes out of the womb? What what noise do they make? They cry. Good. So, like a newborn baby, like someone who's been born again, they cry. Okay, we cry out to all around the, all those around us about the the truth that we've just learned, our salvation. That's the uh, you know the newborn thing. We want to tell everyone about our conversion. Well, I'm a Christian now. And why did she talk only to the men? Well, we went through that last week, but it's probably because she's an outcast, and the women wouldn't have anything to do with her. Uh, verse 29, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? As we went through last week, she called him Jew, which is like a swear word. Uh, then she called him Sir, then she called him Prophet, and now she's calling him Christ or Messiah. So the woman's understanding of Jesus expanded from this hated guy from Jewish guy, you know, what are you doing over here, get away, to you're the Messiah. And there's four things I want to point out that impressed her or that, that Jesus used to, to change her heart and to turn her to him. He was friendly and welcoming. So that's if we're going to witness to people, we need to be friendly and welcoming. He was honest and yet loving in his confrontation of her sin. Uh, the other thing was a supernatural knowledge shown by Jesus. Now, we don't have that, but the Holy Spirit does. 
And so when we go through the um, the commandments, you know, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever lusted, etc.? That's the Holy Spirit demonstrating that to the person. So we don't need to have supernatural knowledge. The Lord does that work. And the possibility that he was the Christ, the Messiah, and that's where we get to when we're witnessing. We say um, that Jesus is the Savior of the world and you need to be saved from your sin. <clears throat> so verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came to him. So all these men came out of the city just because of this one simple testimony. Come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? It's not long, intellectual, or complicated. How much do you need to know to be an effective witness for Christ? Obviously not much. <laughs> okay. uh, so you just, you just share what you know. It's from the heart. And what's your invitation? It's an invitation to meet the Messiah. Okay, so our, uh, I'd like, um, if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 45, it's Philip says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of um, Nazareth? And Philip just says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. I don't have all the answers, just come and see. So you want to draw people to Jesus, tell them about Jesus. Uh, verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So I wonder why Jesus wasn't hungry. Well, he's experienced revival, refreshment, and renewal as a result of reaching out. So when our spirit is refreshed, so is our body. There's a connection between spirit, soul, and body. When we are depressed, then it affects our affects us physically, right? So if we're emotionally depressed, then it affects us physically. If we're in rebellion against God and our spirit is, is being disciplined, we're, we're grieving because we've grieved the Holy Spirit, then it's also going to have an effect on our soul and our body. But when the opposite is true, when our spirit is refreshed, when our spirit is invigorated by doing God's work, then our soul and our body will also be strengthened. So that connection is true. And there's nothing more satisfying than doing the work of God. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So my food, Jesus is saying, is that which sustains, refreshes, and nourishes me, is to do my Father's will and to finish his work. So it's God first, me second. And I just want to point out that the Father's work here was not visible. There wasn't people saying, you know, the, the Samaritans didn't send a text to Jesus saying, hey, we're really interested in, to know the Messiah. You know, would you please come? It's, Jesus just went there on the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He's been led by his Father. And the Father is, is leading him. He's doing the things that please the Father. He's What the Father says, Jesus says. What the Father does, Jesus does. So Jesus just went where the Father led him, as we must go where our Father leads us. And then we will find out where he has been working and we can join in his work, just like Jesus did. Verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Now these, um, as far as I know, these Samaritan people, they used to wear white robes and white turbans. So Jesus is saying, as a picture, as an as a analogy kind of thing the fields are white so all these 
people dressed in white standing before them. It's like a field ready to be harvested. These people in our culture would be the ones who had been who have been forgotten and are ignored. These people are not the the rich and famous. These people are not the, the ones with the good jobs. These people they've been rejected. You know, these are the what we call dregs of the society. Often these people are the ones who are most ready to receive the gospel. So it's really it's sometimes hard to mix with these people, but it's important that we do, because otherwise I'll never hear the gospel. It's easy to think, oh, let's talk to the, the coach of the Eagles or let's um <laughs> you know, let's talk to the, the CEO of, of the big company, you know, Apple or something like that. But the real action lies with Samaritans, the people that others aren't interested in, the people who won't help our business or gain us reputation in ministry. God sees everyone as needing him. So here's a summary of Jesus' method of personal evangelism. So if you go back into verse 7, so you have to read this um, yourself later, but if you go back in verse 7, he started a conversation about something that she could relate to, just anything, something in the natural realm. And then in verse 10, he swung the conversation to the spiritual realm. He, he mentioned something about the things of God. The third thing he did was he used the law to bring conviction of sin. So Jesus used the seventh commandment. She was committing adultery. And we can ask questions like, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever blasphemed? And, and people can say, yeah, I have. And they're actually realizing as they say, yes, I have, that, yes, I'm, I'm a sinner. You're not telling them you're a sinner. They're, they're, yes, I have. You're asking, and they're saying, yes, I am. And fourth, Jesus revealed himself as a Messiah. Once the law has humbled the hard heart, softened the hard heart, they, they, uh, the person's heart is humbled, they are ready for grace. They are ready to receive the gospel. So the Bible says that God resists the proud and gives gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. The person who is broken and humble before God is ready to receive the finished work of the cross, that God sent his son to suffer and die in our place. But the person whose heart is hard is not ready to receive that, and so you have to just kind of wait and don't cast your pearl before swine, as Jesus would say. Here's an, uh, an, a suggestion. Um, if you don't know how to show your faith or you're not confident and you want to become more confident, as a church we've done the Way of the Master Basic Evangelism Training Course, um, that or, or something similar, there's other ones out there too, then I strongly encourage you to do so because being equipped to share your faith is really important because if you're not, you're not prepared. And then pray for boldness. And find like-minded people who will encourage you to keep on sharing your faith, even when you don't feel like it. So find people who also like to share their faith and work with them. And you'll encourage one another, because a cold by itself will soon grow dark. It'll, it'll soon go out. That, that enthusiasm will soon wear off if you're by yourself. And sharing your faith is hard work, okay? And you need the enthusiasm of other people to keep you going. It's just the way it works most of the time, at least for me. Um, think, picture this. Uh, if you were in the army, would you go? Would you feel confident if you were ill-equipped? If you were wearing your, your board shorts and a pair of thongs 
and they're going to send you in the, into the trenches. No gun, you know, you've got your snorkel and your mask and, and that's it. I don't think so. So if you're not equipped to evangelize, that's how you're going to feel. You're going to feel totally unprepared, totally ill-equipped, and you're just going to say, no, it's too hard. I'm going to be scared. Verse 36, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not laboured. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labours. So the Samaritans were broken people. They were despised in the eyes of the Jews. They were barred from the temple, banned from going to the temple. All this hardship had already worked in their hearts. It had broken them. It had tilled their, their so- the hard soil of their hearts, and they were ready for the harvest. So the people who are suffering today, Often, they're ready, they're broken, they're ready to receive the gospel. And I just want to share, whatever little town you're from, where Esperance or, or where you guys are from, you know, think about the broken people there, the people who are on drugs, the people, that, the single mums, the, the people who who are really kind of um, uh, what we would call down and out. They, they are the people who seem the furthest away from the kingdom, but actually they're probably the closest to it. So what does the Bible say about soul winning? Well, Proverbs 11.30, He who wins souls is wise. Daniel says that the one who turns many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever, Daniel 12.3. And we just read that Jesus says that he who reaps presently shall receive wages eternally. Now, some people might say, I don't care about that. Heaven's too far away. I've got no problems now. I have to mow my lawn, clean my car, um, buy, buy a house, you know. But if those are your priorities, if that's what you're living for, if that's where your energy is going, then if those are the wells, so to speak, um, where you're drawing from, then you'll become exhausted. You will thirst again, as we talked about last week. Those pursuits will not fulfill you here on earth. And when you get to heaven, you'll be bankrupt. You'll have nothing because you'll have no reward for your labors. So think about personal evangelism as an opportunity to leave behind those things which only give us temporary pleasure, which in the end they leave us drained, and we can let give those things up and instead do something for the kingdom and have eternal reward. And we can feel like Jesus did. We can feel invigorated, refreshed. I don't need that earthly stuff. I've got I'm doing the will of the Father. Another form of reaching out to others is mentoring. When a more mature Christian comes alongside a newer Christian and disciples them through regular Bible study, fellowship and prayer. So if you're not the kind of person or you don't have the opportunities to get out there in the streets and, um, and, and start talking to people, then mentoring is really, really important too. We need discipleship in our churches. Some people say it's so tough to witness. Now, you know, there's only, there's a, there's a survey and only about 2% of Christians in the Western world share their faith. That's one in 50. <laughs> That's pretty shocking, eh? This means that only one in 50 Christians is effective in sharing their faith. And it's no surprise that there's so many out there who have never heard the gospel. I believe that there's two main reasons people don't evangelize today. Uh, some people, they just don't care. 
I was talking to some pastors about this a little while ago at a conference, and this was their comment. They embrace Christianity for what they can get out of it. They are consumers. They shop around for churches to find one that best suits their particular needs, where they feel the most comfortable, where they have the best music or the music they like, the one that ticks the most boxes. They have a youth group, a basketball team, a men's golfing club, a women's sewing club, or whether they will be given a position of prominence, whether they can be used there. So they come along, not for what they can give, but for what they can get out of it. If they are offended or no longer stimulated or they don't get their needs met, they just, they're out. They leave and find somewhere else which is better in their eyes. At best, these people are backsliders who are way out of touch with God. These people are not joining God in his work because we don't go to church to get, we go to church to give. Okay, We give our lives up to be used by the Lord. If not, you don't go to church because you're comfortable there or because it is the most comfortable church for you to be in. It suits you the best. You go to the church that God leads you so you can serve. Now, God, for these people, is not their first love. Other things or other people are on the throne. Um, the church today is pretty impure. They might have a partner or be in some kind of sin, and the hearts are growing hard. At best, these people are backsliders, but at worst, these people are false converts. Fake believers who know the language, know the Bible, smell like Christians, look like Christians, but are not Christians. They're being propped up by others. And I've heard people say that, you know, if um, another pastor said, I read in a book, the story of him being a pastor in his early years, he used to say, oh, he'd go along and pick these guys up in his church and bring along to Bible study. And he'd call them and he'd be like almost nagging them to keep them coming to Bible study. If he didn't do that, they'd fall away. Well, these guys weren't Christians. He he figured out later on they're not actually Christians. He he spoke to them about that, and um, and they realized and, they, and the initial reaction was how dare you sound like a Christian, but later on they actually did become Christians and they were really happy that he was actually honest with them. So you know their, their response might be, oh I suppose I can make it this week, and all the time they're thinking about the TV show. That, oh I'm going to record that TV show now. Ah. Oh. I have to watch a movie another time. I was really hoping to watch that, you know, and that's that's their mindset. They're not really interested in the things of God. Now the second group of people, these are the people these are I've done this segregation. Um, so this is my opinion. The second group of people are people who love the Lord but really have no clue how to start a conversation or turn a conversation to the spiritual to talk about Jesus. So they are unprepared, untrained, and unequipped when it comes to sharing their faith. Now until fairly recently, a few years ago, I was like that. I'd have a desire to share my faith. I, even as a, a university student when I was like 19, 20, you know, if someone would just ask me about Jesus, then I could tell them. But I can't bring the conversation up. I didn't know how. And I didn't know how to effectively share the whole gospel. I knew the whole gospel. I went to a good church who taught it, but I didn't know how to share it. And sometimes when we're like that, when we try to share our faith, we get ridiculed and mocked, and then we go, well, that doesn't work. I better not do that again. So for the turning point for me was doing the Way of the Master basic evangelism training course done by Living Waters. It focuses on the way Jesus witnesses to people and breaks down what Jesus did into steps or questions that you can ask people. And suddenly I was able to start talking to the person sitting next to me on the plane or the taxi driver and then swing the conversation to the spiritual. 
In a matter of 10 minutes, I was able to ask simple questions that brought conviction and a realization of the need for the Savior and explain who the Savior was, just like Jesus did in chapter 4 and John. So many times there was appreciation for me taking the time to share what I believed. Now, I did not expect that when I first started sharing the gospel. I didn't expect people to say, look, I'm so thankful that you shared that with me. I didn't know that. But it happens more often than not. Luke ten, two to 3 it says, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. So, there's one laborer that you can pray for and get instant results with. You know who that is? One laborer that you can pray for and get instant results. And that is yourself. <laughs> you can ask God to make you a laborer. Lord, prepare me, teach me, give me boldness, and, and you know, do what you need to do. And then we can go to the Samaritans, you know, talk to that um, unlovely, the unlovable, the ignored person. Um, for me, the most effective evangelism is with the taxi drivers, Uber drivers, and stuff like that. You know, these people from different countries that are really kind of weird um, religions and stuff. But they're willing to talk. They're willing to share. And for me personally, the best way to start talking to them about the gospel is to ask them what they believe, and then I get to talk about what I believe, and um, it works well. Because then you ask about their, nation, their culture, their nationality, where they came from. That you, you draw them in, and then you get to share the gospel. You just turn it around. So, how do we measure success in evangelism? Well, I've got a quote from Ray Comfort. It says, "Do not be tempted to measure evangelistic success." by the number of decisions obtained. We tend to rejoice over decisions when heaven re reserves its rejoicing for repentance. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's Luke 15.10 It is easy to get decisions for Jesus using the modern method of well-chosen words and psychological manipulation. Rather, see success as having the opportunity to sow the seed of God's word into the hearts of your hearers. If you faithfully sow, someone else will reap. If you have the privilege of reaping, then someone else has faithfully sown before you. One sows, another reaps, but it is God who gives the increase. And where do you find that verse? It's in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-11. It says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed? as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So none of us can take credit for anything that happens when we witness. It's God doing the work in people's hearts. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, the church. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So when we share, it's got to be the true gospel. It's got to be focused on Jesus. Now personally, I rarely get to lead anyone to the Lord. Because most of the people I've talked to, 
they never heard the gospel before. And suddenly it's something they need to think about. They need to be ready to count the cost, to give up their old way of life. And that doesn't happen quickly. So it won't be until I get to heaven that I will see the eternal effect of what I've shared with others. But I just know that God is still working. And this is true for most missionaries, pastors, and anyone who does the work of God faithfully. Like as a teacher in school, I get the kids coming through year by year. I share. You don't see much change, but down the track you hear stories of, oh, you know, what you said really made a difference and did change. So you just don't know how God is going to use what you've said. So I look forward to getting to heaven and and um, seeing how what I said and what someone else said and what someone else said and all worked together in this person's life and God used us all to change them. Uh, verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. We don't need to have a really, really, you know how some people have these wonderful testimonies? We don't need to have a wonderful testimony. We just need to be real. We just need to be straightforward and uh, and just tell people the truth. We don't need to be super smart. We don't need to have been, have been a Christian for 20 years. We just need to have that enthusiasm and that equipping and then we can go out and we can be effective. Now, Jesus pointed out her sin and we, and we went through that last week. But I think this woman was amazed, not only that Jesus knew the facts of her life, but he loved her even knowing the facts of her life. She's been divorced five times, married, divorced five times, and now she's living with her partner, who de facto, you know, she's living in sin. And we sometimes wonder that if someone knew all that I ever did, they could not love us. You know, if they knew my true heart, then would they really love me? But she knows that Jesus loves her. So Jesus, in the way he spoke to her, communicated his love for her. And we need to do that when we share the gospel as well, communicate the love of God to them in the way we we talk to them. Verse 40, So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. So that's, um, people will hear, they'll be convinced or convicted by a testimony, but then they can start reading the Bible for themselves, and that truth will then cause them to believe further. Verse 42, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves had have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. So these Samaritans have come to the great understanding that Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jews, but he's a saviour for all humanity. He is the saviour of the world. And that's the question that he leaves us with here. Who do, who do you say Jesus is? That's the question everybody has to answer. For us as Christians, he is my saviour. He is the saviour of the world, but he's also my saviour. So let's just uh, quickly go through the rest of this chapter. So he leaves the Samaritan village and he goes to Galilee. So we'll just read from verse 43. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. 
having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And as he was going down, or now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. This again is a second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judah into, into Galilee. So, Verse 43, um, Jesus departed from there, went to Galilee, and Jesus says, testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus leaves this, this revival that's happening in Samaria, and he goes down to Galilee, to Cana again. Did you know that that was predicted? Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says, Nevertheless, at that time of darkness and despair, will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So this prophecy is being fulfilled right here. Jesus is going there. He's witnessing to these people in this darkness and he's revealing the light to them. So the scriptures for Jesus weren't only predictive but directive. So Jesus would have read the Bible and he would have said, you know what, this says I need to do this, this and this and he would go and do it. He was obedient to what the Bible said for him. In the same way, we need to look at the Bible and say, okay, what does the Bible say for me? What is what what is God's will for me? And we need to do it. And John thirteen seventeen, happy are you if you do these things. And I quote Happiness does not come from hearing scripture or agreeing with theology. Happiness we're talking joy here. Happiness comes when we get it in gear and carry out the things which the word the word directs us to do, when we put our theology into practice. So we need to have feet on our on our what we learn. A prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus grew up there in, in Nazareth around the Galilee. And they were familiar with Jesus. Now, this is dangerous when we can become familiar with Jesus. They think they know him, but they don't. So and I think there's a lot of this in the church today where people are have a false familiarity with Jesus, a dangerous feeling that we know all about him. And sometimes that leads to a lack of honor towards him. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So what were the Galileans coming? Why are they coming to see? Why do they receive him? They were coming to see Jesus because in their eyes he was a curious miracle worker. But they didn't receive him as their saviour. It's different, you see. They were not interested in who he was, but only in what he could do. They were seeking an experience, but not salvation. Does this sound familiar today? They have a false familiarity. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So this nobleman was popular, powerful, and very prominent in the community. Uh, He was a, a servant in Herod's court. But guess what? No matter how successful you are, <laughs> the cross makes everything a level playing field because we all have to die one day. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, someone in your family could die and you're still going to experience the same grief as someone who doesn't have much money. You can't buy life and in the end, money is useless when it comes to to eternity, to life. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So the nobleman is seeking Jesus, and the, the idea is that he's begging Jesus to come and heal his son. And verse 48, Jesus kind of speaks to these people and to their heart. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Think about the Samaritans. How many miracles did Jesus need to do to convince the Samaritans to believe? None. He just talked, he shared the truth, and that was it. The Samaritans heard his word and believed, and you'll find that in verse 42. The Galileans needed miracles, signs, and wonders to believe. Now these are supposed to be the more spiritual religious people. These are the ones who went down to the feast. These are the ones who knew the Bible. So who do you think had greater faith? The Jewish Galileans or the Gentile Samaritans? Well, I would say it had to be the Samaritans who had the greatest faith. So signs and wonders can lead a person towards belief in God and can validate a heavenly messenger, but they can also have no effect on a person. And Satan can use lying signs and wonders in Second Thessalonians 2.9. He does that. In fact, during the tribulation, we the false prophet used signs and lying wonders to deceive those who dwell on the earth. And it's uh, an interesting verse. It says, And he exercises, that's the false prophet, all the authority of the first beast, who was the Antichrist, in his presence, and causes the earth and all who dwell on it to worship the Antichrist, the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast or the Antichrist. And there's another interesting way that God uses signs and wonders. It's in Deuteronomy 11. It's a test of our faith. Okay, It's Deuteronomy 13, uh, 1 through 5. It says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. 
You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice that verse that's highlighted. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then it goes on to get rid of that guy and and get rid of the evil that's in your midst. So God will allow some false prophets to come into the church who will do genuine signs and wonders, but they will have a false gospel. And we need to be discerning, is it a false gospel? Yes, okay, well, even though the signs and wonders are real, we still need to reject this guy. We need to have good doctrine. We need to know the truth. So the word of God should always be the basis of our faith, not miracles, experiences, or signs which come to pass. And in saying that, we also need to have balance. We need to understand that what Jesus said was not meant to discourage signs and wonders in themselves, but to discourage a carnal or fleshly dependence on them. So nothing wrong with signs and wonders. They just they need to be used right. The nobleman said to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now I want to compare this guy to Matthew chapter 8 where another Gentile nobleman, a Roman centurion, faced sickness in his house. He too was a man of prominence and political power and he too lived in the region of Capernaum and he too came to Jesus. But what did he say? My son is dying, said the Roman centurion. And Jesus says to him, I'll come to your house and heal him. Oh, and the Roman centurion says, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Just speak the word and he will be healed. You don't have to come to my house. I don't need any special special effects, any signs and wonders. Just You just speak the word and it's done. And Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. And here we have the nobleman begging Jesus to come to his house. So yes, he does have faith, but his faith is, is lesser. Jesus did not want to go to his house. It wasn't in the Father's will for him to do that, and so Jesus doesn't do that. So we can be praying, but our prayers need to be open prayers, I believe, not too specific, because we don't want to be telling God what to do. The nobleman said, you need to come down, and heal my son. And the only way this is going to happen if you actually come and heal my son. And Jesus says, no, actually, I've got another way of healing your son. I'm just going to speak the word. And he's healed. I don't need to go to your house. So that's it. And we can be um, have needs as well. Oh, Lord, there's these bills. Here is a need. And this is how you're going to fix it. This is how you're going to provide the money. No, God might have another plan. Or what about this? There he is. I'm single and so is he. Let's get this relationship going, Lord. So, you know, you don't know if that's the right person for you. What about, Lord, this is a great business opportunity, so bless it by next Monday. You know, we want God to do what we want him to do. It's like rub the genie and the magic happens. That's not how God wants us to relate to him. We want to be like the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. He said, Lord, here's the situation. Lord, you deal with it how you want to deal with it. I leave it in your hands. Now, this nobleman had to be humbled, and Jesus allowed this sickness in his house to bring this humility, to bring him to realize that he can't do things on his own. He's not got it all together because he can't help his own kids. 
And so Jesus is testing this man's faith, forcing him to believe in Jesus' word alone. But the man took Jesus at his word and departed. He, he believed Jesus. And that's what simple faith is, real faith is, is just taking Jesus at his word. And what a difference it would make for us if we just did the same thing all the time. You know, take Jesus at his word. Now, Jesus just said, your son lives. He spoke the word, boom, it happened, just like he spoke in creation. Why didn't Jesus use any dramatic effects in his healing? Well, he could. But to real faith, signs and wonders are not necessary. Why can they be dangerous? Because if Jesus continually used dramatic healings, then people would come to rely on the dramatic healing for their faith, and that's what can happen. They produce a weak faith because the people can come to rely on the signs and wonders and not on the truth of the Word of God. They rely more on experiential feeling than they do the truth. So the man believed the Word Jesus spoke to him and went his way, verse 50. So he had had a fair bit of faith, probably more than most of us. He said, okay, I believe you, and he walked away. He didn't keep on begging and pleading and arguing. He just said, fine, I'll take it. I'll let you do things your way. Verse 51, And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, this happened in Cana. Capernaum is the home of the nobleman. It's a four-hour walk. So why didn't the nobleman start jogging and be home in two hours? You know, he would have found out that, oh, two hours ago your son was fine. But no, this is the next day, and he's still not home yet. So this, to me, speaks of, of developing faith. So we would say, oh, I've got to get home. I've got to see if this is true. But he said, you know what? Jesus said it. I'm just going to relax. I've finished my business here. My son's well. Why do I need to go home quickly? That's the kind of faith this guy had. Jesus was working in him, tested him, pushed him, and now he has his, his strong faith. And how stress-free and happy and joyful we could be if we just read the Word and believed it and didn't have to doubt all the time. At least I do sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> verse 53, So the father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. So his faith is growing. Now, when dad becomes a Christian, often the whole family will. That's a good thing. So Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. His whole household serve the Lord. The, the Philippian jailer, he believed and his whole household believed. Now, it's not a magic formula. It's not going to happen all the time. But often, if the leader of the home becomes a believer, then the family will follow. So that's something that um, you can pray for. That, that There is a lot of, um, if the, the husband leads well, then he can lead his family. As I said, it's not a guarantee, but it, it's, it's more often than not. And he himself believed. So that's what it says there in verse 53. And he himself believed. But his faith is, it's telling us his faith is growing. Uh, verse 54, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he come out of Judah into Galilee. So the first miracle or sign performed in Cana 
was Jesus turning water into a wine. It was a family celebration. And here, his second miracle was performed almost at a funeral. So a, fa- a time of family crisis, a family sadness. So it doesn't matter what your need is, Jesus is always the one who can help. And this is the second sign. It's All of these signs are given that we might believe, John 20, 30, 31. And uh, it's obvious how we can see that this miracle built this guy's faith, and it can build ours too. Father, I thank you for this uh, scripture. I thank you that you have uh, allowed us to dig into this and, Lord, to, to glean from the uh, the way that you speak to people, the rebukes that you give to people, the difference between the Samaritan's faith and the, the Galilean's faith. Lord, help us to meditate on these things and to I pray that you'll show us your truth, your, and if there's anything in our lives that need to, needs to change, anything we need to stop trusting in our own ways and will and, and turn it over to you. If there's anything in our evangel- personal evangelism where we think we're prepared, I pray that we'll take steps to get prepared so we can be effective in sharing. We can be a soldier who's equipped, properly dressed, and properly armed for the battle. So I just, yeah, commit us to you, give us boldness, give us grace. And give us a heart of love and empathy towards those who are on the outside so that we can communicate your love to them like Jesus did to the woman at the well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.